Chapter 11 of Old Time Makers of Medicine. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Marcetich. September 2009, Alexandria, Virginia. Old Time Makers of Medicine by James Joseph. Chapter 11 Guy de Choliac. Part 2 of 2. Choliac's right to the title of Father of Surgery will perhaps be best appreciated from the brief account of his recommendations as to the value of surgical intervention for conditions in the three most important cavities of the body, the skull, the thorax, and the abdomen. These cavities have usually been the dread of surgeons. Choliac not only used the trephine, but laid down very exact indications for its application. Expectant treatment was to be the rule in wounds of the head, yet when necessary, interference was counseled as of great value. His prognosis of brain injuries was much better than that of his predecessors. He says that he had seen injuries of the brain, followed by some loss of brain substance, yet with complete recovery of the patient. In one case that he notes, a considerable amount of brain substance was lost, yet the patient recovered with only a slight defect of memory, and even this disappeared after a time. He lays down exact indications for the opening of the thorax that nole me tangere of surgeons at all times, even our own, and points out the relations of the ribs and the diaphragm so as to show just where the opening should be made in order to remove fluid of any kind. In abdominal conditions, however, Choliac's anticipation of modern views is most surprising. He recognized that wounds of the intestines were surely fatal unless leakage could be prevented. Accordingly, he suggested the opening of the abdomen and the sewing up of such intestinal wounds as could be located. He describes a method of suture for these cases and seems, like many another abdominal surgeon, even to have invented a special needle holder. To most people it would seem absolutely out of the question that such surgical procedures could be practiced in the 14th century. We have the definite record of them, however, in a textbook that was the most read volume on the subject for several centuries. Most of the surprise with regard to these operations will vanish when it is recalled that in Italy during the 13th century, as we have already seen, methods of anesthesia by means of opium and mandragora were in common use, having been invented in the 12th century and perfected by Ugo da Luzza, and Choliac must not only have known, but must have frequently employed various methods of anesthesia. In discussing amputations, he has described in general certain methods of anesthesia in use in his time, and especially the method by means of inhalation. It would not seem to us in the modern time that this method would be very successful, but there is an enthusiastic accord of authorities attesting that operations were done at this time with the help of this inhalant without the infliction of pain. Choliac says, quote, some prescribe medicaments which send the patient to sleep, 
so that the incision may not be felt, such as opium, the juice of the morel, hyoscyamus, mandrake, ivy, hemlock, lettuce. A new sponge is soaked by them, and these juices are left to dry in the sun, and when they have need of it, they put this sponge into warm water, and then hold it under the nostrils of the patient until he goes to sleep. Then they perform the operation. End quote. Many people might be prone to think that the hospitals of Choliac's time would not be suitable for such surgical work as he describes. It is, however, only another amusing assumption of this self-complacent age of ours to think that we were the first who ever made hospitals worthy of the name and of the great humanitarian purpose they subserve. As a matter of fact, the old-time hospitals were even better than ours, or, as a rule, better than any we had until the present generation. In The Popes and Science, in the chapter on the foundation of city hospitals, I call attention to the fact that architects of the present day go back to the hospitals of the Middle Ages in order to find the models for hospitals for the modern times. Mr. Arthur Dillon, a well-known New York architect, writing of a hospital built at Tonnerre in France toward the end of the 13th century, 1292, says, quote, It was an admirable hospital in every way, and it is doubtful if we today surpass it. It was isolated, the ward was separated from the other buildings, it had the advantage we so often lose of being but one story high, and more space was given to each patient than we can now afford. The ventilation by the great windows and ventilators in the ceiling was excellent. It was cheerfully lighted, and the arrangement of the gallery shielded the patients from dazzling light and from draughts from the windows and afforded an easy means of supervision. While the division by the roofless low partitions isolated the sick and obviated the depression that comes from the sight of others in pain. It was, moreover, in great contrast to the cheerless white wards of today. The vaulted ceiling was very beautiful, the woodwork was richly carved, and the great windows over the altars were filled with colored glass. Altogether, it was one of the best examples of the best period of Gothic architecture. End quote. The fine hospital thus described was but one of many. Virchow, in his article on hospitals quoted in the same chapter, called attention to the fact that in the 13th and 14th centuries, every town of 5,000 or more inhabitants had its hospital, founded on the model of the great Santo Spirito Hospital in Rome, and all of them did good work. The surgeons of Guy de Choliac's time would indeed find hospitals wherever they might be called in consultation, even in small towns. They were more numerous in proportion to population than our own, and, as a rule, at least as well organized as ours were until the last few years. It is no wonder that with such a good hospital organization, excellent surgery was accomplished. Hernia was Choliac's specialty, and in it his surgical judgment is admirable. 
Mondeville before his time did not hesitate to say that many operations for hernia were done not for the benefit of the patient, but for the benefit of the surgeon, a very striking anticipation of remarks that one sometimes hears even at the present time. Choliac discussed operations for hernia very conservatively. His rule was that a truss should be worn, and no operation attempted unless the patient's life was endangered by the hernia. It is to him that we owe the invention of a well-developed method of taxis, or manipulation of a hernia, to bring about its reduction, which was in use until the end of the 19th century. He suggested that trusses could not be made according to rule, but must be adapted to each individual case. He invented several forms of truss himself, and in general it may be said that his manipulative skill and his power to apply his mechanical principles to his work are the most characteristic of his qualities. This is particularly noteworthy in his chapters on fractures and dislocations, in which he suggests various methods of reduction and realizes very practically the mechanical difficulties that were to be encountered in the correction of the deformities due to these pathological conditions. In a word, we have a picture of the skilled surgeon of the modern time in this treatise of a 14th century teacher of surgery. Choliac discusses six different operations for the radical cure of hernia. As Gurlt points out, he criticizes them from the same standpoint as that of recent surgeons. The object of radical operations for hernia is to produce a strong, firm tissue support over the ring through which the cord passes, so that the intestines cannot descend through it. It is rather interesting to find that the surgeons of this time tried to obliterate the canal by means of the cautery, or inflammation-producing agents, arsenic and the like, a practice that recalls some methods still used more or less irregularly. They also used gold wire, which was to be left in the tissues and is supposed to protect and strengthen the closure of the ring. At this time, all these operations for the radical cure of hernia involved the sacrifice of the testicle because the old surgeons wanted to obliterate the ring completely and thought this the easiest way. Choliac discusses the operation in this respect and says that he has seen many cases in which men possessed of but one testicle have procreated, and this is a case where the lesser of two evils is to be chosen. Of course, Guy de Choliac would not have been able to operate so freely on hernia and suggest, following his own experience, methods of treatment of penetrating wounds of the abdomen, only that he had learned the lessons of antiseptic surgery, which had been gradually developed among the great surgeons of Italy during the preceding century. The use of the stronger wines as a dressing together with insistence on the most absolute cleanliness of the surgeon before the operation, and careful details of cleanliness during the operation, made possible the performance of many methods of surgical intervention that would otherwise surely have been fatal. Probably nothing is harder to understand than that after these practical discoveries men should have lost sight of their significance 
and after having carefully studied the viscous exudation which produces healthy natural union, should have come to the thought of the necessity for the formation of laudable pus before union might be expected. The mystery is really no greater than that of many another similar incident in human history, but it strikes us more forcibly because the discovery and gradual development of antiseptic surgery in our own time has meant so much for us. Already even in Choliac's practice, however, some of the finer elements of the technique that made surgery antiseptic to a marked degree, if not positively aseptic in many cases, were not being emphasized, as they were by his predecessors, and there was a beginning of surgical meddlesomeness reasserting itself. It must not be thought, however, that it was only with the coarse applications of surgery that Choliac concerned himself. He was very much interested in the surgical treatment of eye diseases and wrote a monograph on cataract, in which he gathers what was known before his time and discusses it in the light of his own experience. The writing of such a book is not so surprising at this time if we recall that in the preceding century the famous Pope John Twenty One, who had been a physician before he became Pope, and under the name of Peter of Spain, was looked up to as one of the distinguished scientists of his time, had written a book on eye diseases that has recently been the subject of much attention. Pope John had much to say of cataract, dividing it into traumatic and spontaneous, and suggesting the needling of cataract, a gold needle being used for the purpose. Choliac's method of treating cataract was by depression. His care in the selection of patients may be appreciated from his treatment of John of Luxembourg, King of Bavaria, blind from cataract, who consulted Choliac in 1336 while on a visit to Avignon with the King of France. Choliac refused to operate, however, and put off the king with dietary regulations. In the chapter of John of Arcoli and Medieval Dentistry, we call attention to the fact that Choliac discussed dental surgery briefly, yet with such practical detail as to show very clearly how much more was known about this specialty in his time than we have had any idea of until recent years. He recognized the dentists as specialists, calls them dentatores, but thinks that they should operate under the direction of a physician. Hence the physician should know much about teeth, and especially about their preservation. He enumerates instruments that dentists should have, and shows very clearly that the specialty had reached a high state of development. A typical example of Choliac's common sense and dependence on observation, and not tradition, is to be found in what he has to say with regard to methods of removing the teeth without the use of extracting instruments. It is characteristic of his method of dealing with traditional remedies, even though of long standing, that he brushes them aside with some impatience if they have not proved themselves in his experience. Quote, These ancients mention many medicaments which draw out the teeth without iron instruments or which make them more easy to draw out, 
such as the milky juice of the tithymal with pyrethrum, the roots of the mulberry and caper, citrine arsenic, aquafortis, the fat of forest frogs. But these remedies promise much and accomplish but little. My ils donnez buco de promises et pu de operations. It is no wonder that Choliac has been enthusiastically praised. Nikaise has devoutly gathered many of these praises into a sheaf of eulogies at the end of his biography of the great French surgeon. He tells us that Fallopius compared him to Hippocrates, John Calvo of Valencia, who translated the great surgery into Spanish, looks upon him as the first lawgiver of surgery. Freind, the great English physician, in 1725, called him the Prince of Surgeons. Ackerman said that Guy de Choliac's textbook will take the place of all that has been written on the subject down to his time, so that even if all the other works had been lost, his would replace them. Desimeris, commenting on this, says that, quote, if one should take this appreciation literally, this surgeon of the 14th century would be the first and, up to the present time, the only author who ever merited such an eulogy. At least, he adds, we cannot refuse him the distinction of having made a work infinitely superior to all those which appeared up to this time, and even for a long time afterwards. Posterity rendered him this justice, for he was for three centuries the classic par excellence. He rendered the study easy and profitable, and all the foreign nations the tributaries of our country. Perilli suggested Guy's surgery as the most valuable and complete work of all those in the same kind that had been published since Hippocrates, and added that the reading of it was still useful in his time, in 1784. Begin, in his work on Ambrose Pere, says, quote, that Guy has written an immortal book to which are attached the destinies of French surgeons, end quote. Malganet, in his History of Surgery, does not hesitate to say, quote, I do not fear to say that, Hippocrates alone excepted, there is not a single treatise on surgery, Greek, Latin, or Arabic, which I place above, or even on the same level with, this magnificent work, The Surgery of Guy de Choliac. Derenberg said, quote, Guy seems to us a surgeon above all erudite, yet expert and without ever being rash. He knows, above all, how to choose what is best in everything. Vernoul, in his Conference sur les chirurgiens erudites, says, quote, The services rendered by the great surgery were immense. By it there commenced for France an era of splendor. It is with justice, then, that posterity has decreed to Guy de Choliac the title of father of French surgery. End quote. The more one reads of Choliac's work, the less one is surprised at the estimation in which he has been held wherever known. 
it would not be hard to add a further sheaf of compliments to those collected by Nicaise. Modern writers on the history of medicine have all been enthusiastic in their admiration of him, just in proportion to the thoroughness of their acquaintance with him. Portal, in his History of Anatomy and Surgery, says, quote, Finally, it may be averred that Guy de Choliac said nearly everything which modern surgeons say, and that his work is of infinite price, but unfortunately too little read, too little pondered. End quote. Mulganey declares Choliac's Chirurgia Magna to be a masterpiece of learned and luminous writing. Professor Clifford Albert, the Regis Professor of Physic at the University of Cambridge, says of Choliac's treatise, quote, This great work I have studied carefully and not without prejudice, yet I cannot wonder that Fallopius compared the author to Hippocrates, or that John Freund calls him the Prince of Surgeons. It is rich, aphoristic, orderly, and precise. End quote. If to this account of his professional career it be added that Choliac's personality is, if possible, more interesting than his surgical accomplishment, some idea of the significance of the life of the great father of modern surgery will be realized. We have already quoted the distinguished words of praise accorded him by Pope Clement VI, that they were well-deserved, Choliac's conduct during the Black Death with ravaged Avignon in 1348, shortly after his arrival in the Papal City, would have been sufficient of itself to attest. The occurrence of the plague in a city usually gave rise to an exhibition of the most errant cowardice, and all who could fled. In many of the European cities, the physicians joined the fugitives, and the ailing were left to care for themselves. With a few notable exceptions, this was the case at Avignon, but Guy was among those who remained faithful to his duty, and took on himself the self-sacrificing labor of caring for the sick, doubly harassing because so many of his brother physicians were absent. He denounces their conduct as shameful, yet does not boast of his own courage, but on the contrary says that he was in constant fear of the disease. Toward the end of the epidemic, he was attacked by the plague, and, for a time, his life was despaired of. Fortunately, he recovered, to become the most influential among his colleagues, the most highly admired of the physicians of his generation, and the close personal friend of all the high ecclesiastics who had witnessed his magnificent display of courage and of helpfulness for the plague stricken during the epidemic. He wrote a very clear account of the epidemic, which leaves no doubt that it was true bubonic plague. After this fine example, Choliac's advice to brother physicians in the specialty of surgery carried added weight. In the introductory chapters of his Chirurgia Magna, he said, quote, The surgeon should be learned, skilled, ingenious, and of good morals. Be bold in things that are sure, cautious in dangers, avoid evil cures and practices, be gracious to the sick, obliging to his colleagues, wise in his predictions, be chaste, sober, 
pitiful, and merciful, not covetous nor extortionate of money, but let the recompense be moderate, according to the work, the means of the sick, the character of the issue or event, and its dignity. End quote. No wonder that Malgani says of him, quote, Never since Hippocrates has medicine heard such language filled with so much nobility and so full of matter in so few words. End quote. Choliac was in every way worthy of his great contemporaries and the period in which his lot was cast. Ordinarily we are not apt to think of the early 14th century as an especially productive period in human history, but such it is. Dante's Divine Comedy was entirely written during Choliac's life. Petrarch was born within a few years of Choliac himself. Boccaccio in Italy, and Chaucer in England, wrote while Choliac was still alive. Giotto did his great painting, and his pupils were laying the deep, firm foundations of modern art. Many of the great cathedrals were being finished. Most of the universities were in the first flush of their success as molders of the human mind. There are few centuries in history that can show the existence of so many men whose work was to have an enduring influence for all the aftertime as this upon which Choliac's career shed so bright a light. The preceding century had seen the origin of the universities and the rise of such supremely great men as Albertus Magnus, Roger Bacon, Thomas Aquinas, and the other famous scholars of the early days of the mendicant orders, and had made the intellectual mold of university training in which men's minds for seven centuries were to be formed, so that Choliac, instead of being an unusual phenomenon, is only a fitting expression of the interest of this time in everything, including the physical sciences and, above all, medicine and surgery. For some people, it may be a source of surprise that Choliac should have had the intellectual training to enable him to accomplish such judicious work in his specialty. Many people will be apt to assume that he accomplished what he did in spite of his training, genius succeeding even in an unfavorable environment and notwithstanding educational disadvantages. Those who would be satisfied with any such explanation, however, know nothing of the educational opportunities provided in the period of which Choliac was the fruit. He is a typical university man of the beginning of the 14th century, and the universities must be given due credit for him. It is ordinarily assumed that the universities paid very little attention to science and that scientists would find practically nothing to satisfy in their curricula. Professor Huxley, in his address on universities, actual and ideal, delivered as the recitorial address at Aberdeen University in 1874, declared that they were probably educating in the real sense of the word better than we do now. See quotation in The Medical School at Salerno. In the light of Choliac's life, it is indeed amusing to read the excursions of certain historians into the relationship of the popes and the church to science during the Middle Ages. 
Choliac is typically representative of medical science, a man who gave due weight to authority, yet tried everything by his own experience, and who sums up in himself such wonderful advance in surgery that during the last twenty years the students of the history of medicine have been more interested in him than in anyone who comes during the intervening six centuries. Choliac, however, instead of meeting with any opposition, encountered encouragement, liberal patronage, generous interest, and even enjoyed the intimate friendship of the highest ecclesiastics and the popes of his time. In every way his life may be taken as a type of what we have come to know about the Middle Ages, when we know them as we should, in the lives of the men who counted foremost in them, and do not accept merely the broad generalizations, which are always likely to be deceptive, and which in the past have led men into the most absurd and ridiculous notions with regard to a wonderful period in human history. That Guy de Choliac was no narrow specialist is abundantly evident from his book, for while the great surgery treats of the science and art of surgery as its principal subject, there are remarks about nearly everything else relating to medicine, and most of them show a deep interest, a thorough familiarity, and an excellent judgment. Besides, we have certain expressions with regard to intellectual matters generally which serve to show Guy as a profound thinker who thoroughly appreciated just how accumulations of knowledge came to men and how far each generation or member of a generation should go, and yet how limited must, after all, be the knowledge obtained by any one person. With regard to books, for instance, he said, quote, For everyone cannot have all the books, and even if he did have them, it would be too tiresome to read them all and completely, and would require a godlike memory to retain them all. End quote. He realized, however, that each generation, provided it took the opportunities offered it, was able to see a little bit farther than its predecessor, and the figure that he employs to express this is rather striking. Sciences, he said, quote, are made by additions. It is quite impossible that the man who begins a science should finish it. We are like infants, clinging to the neck of a giant, for we can see all the giant sees and a little more. End quote. One of the most interesting features of the history of Guy de Choliac is the bibliography of his works, which has been written by Nicaise. This is admirably complete labored over with the devotion that characterized Nicaise's attitude of unstinted admiration for the subject. Altogether, he has some sixty pages of a quarto volume with regard to the various editions of Guy's works. The first manuscript edition of Guy de Choliac was issued in 1363, the first printed edition in 1478. Even in the 14th century, Guy's great work was translated into all the languages generally used in Europe. Nicaise succeeded in placing 34 complete manuscripts of the great surgery. 22 of these are in Latin, 
four are in French, three are in English, two only in Provençal, although that was the language spoken in the region where much of Choliac's life was passed, and one each in Italian, in Low Dutch, and in Hebrew. One of the English manuscripts, one is a number 25 English of the Bibliothèque Nationale, Paris. A second is number 3666 English of the Sloan Collection in the British Museum, and a third is in the library of the University of Cambridge. Pauline Paris, probably one of the best of recent authorities on the age and significance of old manuscripts, says in the third volume of his Manuscrits Francois, page 346, quote, This manuscript of Guy de Choliac's great surgery was made, if not during the life, then certainly very shortly after the death of the author. It is one of the oldest that can be cited, and the fact that an English translation was made so near to the time of the original composition of the book attests to the great reputation enjoyed by Guy de Choliac at this time, and which posterity has fully confirmed. The Sloan copy in the British Museum contains some medical recipes at the end by Francis Verney. It was probably written in the 15th century. Its title is, quote, The Inventory or the Collectory in Surgical Part of Medicine Compiled and Complete in the Year of Our Lord, 1363, with some additions of other doctors necessary to the foresaid art or craft, end quote. What we find in the period of manuscripts, however, is as nothing compared to the prestige of Guy de Choliac's work, once the age of printing began. Nicaise was able to find sixty different printed editions of the great surgery. Nine others that are mentioned by authors have disappeared and apparently no copies of them are in existence. Besides, there are sixty editions of portions of the work, of compendiums of it, and commentaries on it. Altogether, 129 editions are extant. Of these are 16 Latin editions, 43 French, 5 Italian, 4 Low Dutch, 5 Catalan, and 1 English. 14 appeared in the 15th century, 38 in the 16th century, and 17 in the 17th century. The fourteen editions belonging to the incunabula of printing issued, that is, before the end of the fifteenth century, show what lively interest there was in the French surgeon of the preceding century, since printing presses at this precious time were occupied only with the books that were considered indispensable for scholars. The first edition of the Great Surgery was printed in 1478 at Lyons. Printing had only been introduced there five years before. This first edition, Primus Primarius, or Editio Princeps, was a French translation by Nicholas Panis. In 1480, an Italian edition was printed at Venice. The first Latin edition was printed also in Venice in 1490. It would be only natural to expect that the successors of Guy de Choliac 
and especially those who had come personally in contact with him, would take advantage of his thorough work to make still further advances in surgery. As a matter of fact, decadence in surgery is noted immediately after his death. Three men taught at the University of Montpellier at the end of the 14th and the beginning of the 15th century, John de Tornamia, Velasco de Taranta, and John Falcon. They cannot be compared, Gurlt says, with Guy de Choliac, though they were physicians of reputation in their time. Falcon made a compendium of Guy's work for students. Somehow, there seemed to be the impression that surgery had now reached a point of development beyond which it could not advance. Unfortunate political conditions, wars, the withdrawal of the popes from Avignon to Rome, and other disturbances distracted men's minds, and surgery deteriorated to a considerable extent until the new spirit at the time of the Renaissance came to inject fresh life into it. End of part two of two. End of chapter eleven.